Well, we're in, not in Genesis yet, but we're about Genesis. And y'all might be wondering why, you know, why I'm doing this and laying foundations and background like this and everything. Really, it's, it's about the veracity of God's word. I want you to understand you can trust God's word. And there are a lot of very, very educated people, much uh, more brilliant than I am intellectually, that don't believe God's word. There are a lot of evangelicals. And when I say an evangelical, you understand that I'm narrowing Christianity into a, a, a little slice of Christianity that believe the gospel. That's, I guess, what the evangel. I guess that's basically what I'm saying when I say evangelicals. And so these are brothers um, in the Lord, and yet they don't believe the early chapters of Genesis are literal. We should take them literal. And so I just want to alert you to that. That doesn't alert you to that. That doesn't mean they're not brothers. But at the same time, I want you to understand that God's word can be trusted from the very first word all the way to the very last word. Uh, because he is trustworthy. So just by way of review, and maybe before I begin, let me just begin with a word of prayer and commit our time into the Lord's hands. Father God, we do thank you for meeting with us together. We thank you for your wonderful book that begins at the beginning. And we are grateful that you have revealed to us things that we could not know had we not your word. And so, Father, I pray that you open our hearts to understand these things. And Father, even as we are possibly being critical, it's in a good sense. It's not in a sense of denigration or demonizing others that hold different views. But Father, we want to uplift your word as it is true. And there's so much that chip away at that truth. And so, Father, help us to be generous and yet truthful and help us all to discover what you'd have us to discover through the sermon today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So just by way of review, um, we started off with Psalm 11.3. It says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I believe that I've taken it principally and put it to the attack on Genesis 1 through 11 by various sources that don't take it to be literal. They take it to be more symbolic, or as we'll hear about later today, poetry, and it is not. And we identified a couple of philosophies that have worked hard to destroy biblical foundations and their disastrous results. One is evolution, obviously the death of accountability. In essence, evolution removes the creator-creature distinction. There is a creator, and then there's everything else. And when you remove the creator, you've really destroyed a foundation. And so there is no more personal responsibility to a creator who created us. We become, at least in the warped mind, an independent creature, we're autonomous, and therefore it demolishes any sense of personal responsibility to a creator who made man in his image. 
Um, if you can get this first part right, you're on good standing for the rest. But sadly, evolution has ripped that uh, from us. And it's taught as truth, it's taught as science, and it's been refuted by believing scientists as well as unbelieving scientists. Um, the whole genome project with our DNA and everything has pretty much given a death knell to evolution, and yet it persists. Secondly, the importance of the historical Adam. Was Adam a real person? Now, you might think, well, well of course he was, but that's you. That's you guys here. <laughs> In broader Christianity and evangelical circles, there are many who do not believe that Adam was a historical person. And that, that's, that's a grief, and that too chips away at a very, very important foundation. Genesis is interpreted to be a group of symbolic stories in a genre of other ancient Near Eastern literature by these people. Some try to have it both ways. These are evangelicals that uh, use something called theistic evolution, and so they want to have it both ways. And they desire to maintain their view of an old earth, which means it's billions and billions and billions of years old, which they tell us is science, and so they can harmonize scientific discovery with what the Bible says, and so they place an arbitrary hermeneutical shift when looking at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which talks about, let us make man in our image, the creation of man, and also in 2, 7, again, the creation of man, Adam and Eve, and they say that those texts are literal. You can take them to the bank. So they will say that, yes, there is a historical Adam and Eve, but all the other literature surrounding it, the texts before and after it, are symbolic. Well, if everything around these verses is handled allegorically or symbolically, it's unjustifiable to take those verses just because you want to say so and say they're literal right in the midst of it. It just it doesn't work, but in their minds it does. What does the Bible say about the historicity of Adam? Well, number one, there's a seamless strand of history from Adam in Genesis chapter 2 to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It's a historical account. And you can't set Genesis 1 through 11 aside as prehistory, as some are wont to do in order to make it non-literal. They say it's not the same as beginning with Abraham and the covenants that God established with Abraham and so forth. So real history begins in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 1 through 11 is prehistory. That's what they say. Moses deliberately connects Adam, or excuse me, Abraham, with all the history that comes before him because in Genesis 11, which would be allegorical or symbolic, is where we're introduced to Abram, the son of Terah, and, and Lot and Sarai as well. And then in chapter 12, it continues on <laughs> with their story. So how do we take that then and put it into the category that when they were mentioned in chapter 11, they were, what, uh, some figment of somebody's imagination, some, something that's supposed to teach us a spiritual truth or something, um, but not literal. And then in the very next chapter, oh, they suddenly became literal, I guess. I, it's hard for me 
Okay, so you pray for me that I don't let my biases come out too strongly. But this is difficult, right? Secondly, the genealogies in First Chronicles 1 and Luke 3 treat Adam as historical together with all the other historical biblical characters combined in those genealogies. You've got Isaac and you've got Ishmael in these genealogies and Abraham who are all literal historical characters, biblical characters, and they all include Adam in them. So that, that's another conundrum for those that don't take Genesis 1 through 11 as literal. And then three, Jesus quotes from Genesis 1 and 2 as his historical fact, showing marriage to be a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman, Matthew 19, 3 through 6, and that is an, that's ordained by God. And he was claiming that Jesus, or Jesus was claiming that God established that with Adam and Eve and all that followed. Fourthly, without a historical Adam, Paul's doctrine of original sin and guilt does not hold together. Original sin, Adam sinned in the garden with Eve in chapter 3 of Genesis, which would be um, symbolic and so forth and so on in some people's minds, not literal. Well, then what you have is a big problem. Romans 5.12, which is in the New Testament, and Paul, he says this, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, referring to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, and death through sin, because dad, dad, God said, (laughs) God said that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die as the introduction of death, and they did not die immediately physically, but they died spiritually and became separate. That's the, the meaning of death is separation. They became separate from their source of life, God, their creator, at the moment that they partook of that fruit in disobedience to God. And then physical death followed. Just look at chapter 5 of Genesis, and you'll see that. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died repeatedly. Fifthly, without a historical Adam, Paul's doctrine of the last Adam or the second man does not hold together. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, we read Paul writing again. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. It's really hard for me, and I don't know why. I'm trying to trace in my, in my history, in my background, why I am so repulsed by calling Christ the second Adam. He's never referred to as the second Adam. He's referred to as the second man. He's always referred to as the last Adam. Maybe it's from working with the Taliabal and getting the question, is there anybody worse than Satan? Because they didn't know and they relied on us to teach them. And after they heard about Satan, they said, okay, now you're kind of meeting this stuff out to us slowly. Is there anybody worse than him? And I was happy to say, nope, there isn't. But it's like, if there's a second, is there a third and a fourth Adam coming? I just don't like it. The last Adam I like. And he's referred to that, or the second man. But you destroy that. No Adam, no gospel, people. No Adam, no gospel. If Adam and the fall are not historical, then Jesus died for a mythological problem. 
And he's a mythological savior offering us a mythological hope. See, this is what it goes down to. And, and yet, you know, would little old I go up to somebody that's got 52 letters after their name and say, you're wrong. Yes, I would. And I might be laughed to scorn, but God's word is clear to me. Perspicuity of the scriptures. I don't have to do all sorts of gymnastics and put arbitrary hermeneutical principles at play to have just one little section in chapter 1 and one little section in chapter 2 be allegorical with the rest, or uh, be literal with the rest of its surrounding being allegorical. Don't have to jump through those hoops. It's all literal, and I take it as such. There's another thing that just chops and chops at the foundations that are very, very important to us as human beings. Evolution, uh, no historic Adam. And then we have the therapeutic culture. This is more recent, right? Uh, Where sickness, it's sickness, it's not sin. Uh, It's difficult for many uh, who are secular to actually believe that there are, are wicked people perpetrating evil things. Um, They say that he's mentally ill or sick, and um, therefore they think that it can be treated by medication, right, or by therapy. So a therapeutic nation does not allow for sin. Um, And that, that is something that chips away at a foundational truth. And then we have what I believe has been being generated for quite some time now, biblical illiteracy uh, is rampant. People do not know what the Bible says. They've been being fed pablum from a lot of pulpits, just talking about how-to sermons, um, very little explaining what the Word of God means um, and, and what it means to us and how we are supposed to implement it in our lives and apply it to our lives. You see... In our present situation, I think it is, for the most part, Western societies and definitely many Christians are biblically illiterate. I wrote on this when I had my time working on a doctorate on this, which was incidentally on Genesis 1 through 11, and how to communicate and evangelize postmoderns. And the truth of the matter is, when these are taken away, um, and we take away, we have all those evolution, no historic Adam, not taking the first, gen, uh, first 11 chapters of Genesis literally, and then you, you put into it the fact that nobody understands what the Bible says anyway, so everybody believes whatever is said. <laughs> We're in a heck of a situation, folks. And biblical illiteracy is everywhere. Consequently, we no longer have an advantage, like we once did, okay, of jumping into the gospel because generally people do not possess the necessary background information to understand the gospel. Like in the days of Whitfield and Wesley. As recent as that, we were a Judeo-Christian culture. Not saying everybody were Christians, but our worldview at that time was informed by the scriptures. People knew what sin was. They knew who God was. This is pre evolution. And so you could start with saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and people would understand. Now people say, did 
you just refer to me as a sinner? Who are you to tell me I'm a sinner? I mean, people don't even know what sin is, but they know it's offensive, right? (laughs) So generally people don't possess that necessary background information to understand the gospel. They no longer understand the biblical concept of a creator, of sin, of the relationship between God and man. And many do not even believe in a personal devil or the implication of having such an enemy of their soul. And sometimes we're laughed to scorn when we talk to people about this. But you know what? Talk on. Talk on. Because this, what we hold is truth. And what is opposite of truth is error. And truth is reality. And so what is opposite of truth is unreality. And that's where we're living in Western cultures, is it not? Look around you. I mean, if you're going, how can they say that? How can they do that? How can they be like that? It's because they have turned their back on God and truth, and so they're living in an unreality of their own making, and you can do just about whatever you want to do. But the implications of that are horrific, right? All the necessary information for understanding the need for a Savior and the God-provided drama of redemption is contained within the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Hence my desire and thrill to teach you the first 11 chapters, even though we haven't gotten there yet. We will. We will. Genesis is the foundation upon which the rest of biblical revelation is constructed. It is foundational. And the truths that are taught in Genesis carry through the rest of the word of God. And the teachings of the book of Genesis prepare the reader for the unfolding drama of redemption. They really, truly, truly do. They help. um, Mary and I put together this Chronicles of Redemption that some of you are aware of. It's 15 lessons that take you all the way from creation all the way to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's evangelistic. It's redemptive in nature. And one way that I explain um, why this is a good way to evangelize people is because people are so biblically illiterate, what you're doing when you teach through that course is you're actually giving them a biblical worldview into which at the end you preach the gospel. They will understand the gospel. They may not accept it. They can reject it but at least they will understand what they're rejecting. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Incidentally, that last quote was from Dr. Bill Barrick, and I want to give him credit for that. He's a dear man. That Genesis is a foundation upon which the rest of biblical revelation is constructed. It is. Okay, so I want to talk now. I'm in your bulletin now if you want to take notes there. The role of biblical genre and Genesis, because genre is very, very important in the way that we understand what we're reading. One author has summarized the interpretations used for Genesis 1 through 11 to be one of four. One of four. These are four different ways we can interpret the first 11 chapters of Genesis. One, it's a myth with little or no, uh, no historicity. There's no history there. It's a myth. Number two, largely figurative, but not a myth. 
but it's figurative. It's meant to teach something. And then number three, partly figurative, neither a myth, but not entirely literal. And number four, literal. Now, only one of the four uses a consistent hermeneutic, a method of interpretation through Genesis. One and four, the mythical or the literal. Both of them use a consistent, they they view it consistently all the way through. The other two are pick and choose kind of interpretation. Most who don't hold to a consistent hermeneutic treat Genesis 1 through 11 using different hermeneutics than they do with Genesis 12 through 50. I don't want to beat a dead horse, that's the truth. Um, Genesis 12 is seen as this is where history really starts. You'll get that a lot in commentaries and men teaching on Genesis. And by differently, they mean that we should take it figuratively rather than historical literature. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are real historic people, but not anyone in Genesis 1 through 11. We've already covered that. They're they're in Genesis 1 through 11, so quit it. I want you to kind of follow along with me now, and I know that you know, if I, if I was really a hip pastor, I'd have a, a PowerPoint, you know, so you'd have all these points up there, but I'd wear myself all week trying to do PowerPoint presentations for you, so you're just going to have to listen and take notes, okay? Genesis 12 doesn't make a lot of sense with the preparatory genealogy of Genesis 11, Okay? If that's out of the picture where Abram, Sarai, and Lot are first introduced, Genesis 12, it just, you kind of lose it. And then there is Genesis 11, genealogies beginning of which Abraham, or Abram, is mentioned at the end of those genealogies in chapter 11. You can just take my word for it, mark it down. Genealogy, Genesis 11. Abraham at end. But it begins with Shem, which means that's in 11.10. It begins with Shem. Who's Shem? And to understand who Shem is, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 10 and the genealogy there where we meet Shem's brothers, Ham and Japheth. Well, who are they? Well, incidentally, they happen to be the sons of Noah. So that's in 10.1, which brings us back to Genesis 6 through 9 and the flood story if you want to hear about Noah, right? So we're back to Genesis 6 now from 11. And then this is intrinsically uh, related to Genesis chapter 5 genealogy, which identifies the generations of Adam, 5.1. And then that genealogy ends with Noah, the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So that kind of wraps it up. So how can anyone seriously promote taking Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as historic people, but deny Adam and Eve and Noah and see them as figurative or representative persons, but not historical people? Folks, Genesis 1 through 11 flows. It flows beautifully. There aren't hiccups in it. It's not poetry or symbolic literature that has a moral point to it. There are lessons to be learned from it for sure, but it's historical narrative, these chapters, especially one and two. So the genre of what we're reading affects the way we read it. 
The Bible is made up of many different genres. There's history, there's law, there's poetry, there's wisdom, and there's letters, epistles. Genre, it's long been recognized that genre plays an important role in the way we interpret what we're reading. It provides a framework for understanding the intended meaning of a text. Readers sift through the implications of the possible meanings and the intrinsic genre uh, genre guides them in determining which have greater validity and as the likely meaning of what you're reading. In layman's terms, we don't read a comic strip in the same way we would read an editorial page in a newspaper. They're different genre, you understand, right? They're two different genre. If Genesis is a historical narrative, it delivers actual facts as to what took place. If Genesis is poetry or merely symbolic, it does not mean factual data. That's the discussion here at play. So is it literal or non-literal? Well, when it comes to Genesis, it has become popular to use genre as a way to open the door of reading it as non-literal. When Genesis is viewed as anything but historical narrative addressing literal historical happenings, it becomes anyone's guess then what the actual symbolic meanings are and what the theological implications are in the story. You can go anywhere. If it's allegorical and mythical type literature, why not, you know, between Genesis 1 and 1 and 2, there's a large gap. Next week, next week for that, okay? There's a large gap. And during that gap period, spaceships came to Earth and dropped off little pods that turned into human beings, and that's where we came from. Why not? I can say anything I want. Believe me, people do. It's just insane. Here's an argument for Genesis 1 through 11 and on as literal Old Testament history. Okay, There's eight points here, just real quick ones. It's narrative centering on people and events. It's narrative centering on people and events. Number two, it's biographical, telling the story about God's work in his world through people, real people. And it flows like that. If you didn't have a PhD and you just read it at face value, you'd read it as historical narrative. Number three, it is subjective. It's seen through the perspectives and interpretation of the authors. Number four, it is theocentric, presenting itself as the word of God and not just human record. Moses never claimed to have seen the creation. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's it's theocentric. And number five, it's selective, as all details that do not relate to the central message are ignored. It's not exhaustive in the information it gives us, but it is factual and it is true. Number six, it is history presenting itself as the writing of actual history. In a minute, I'll talk to you about the origin of the five books of of, uh, the Pentateuch, which Moses wrote and why he wrote it. So it's history. Number seven, it's consistently contextual not just telling the past, but relating it to the needs of the present and forward. 
it just flows so beautifully, and we'll see it as we get into it. And number eight, it is interpretive, yielding the author's assessment of the events, often by way of editorial asides. I'm, and I'll point those out as we study through these, these first 11 chapters. Um, just read the story in chapter, chapter 3 of the fall of man into sin. Read it and just see how it just flows. And then, boom, you go into chapter 4 and you see the spread of sin. And their children, Cain and Abel. And what do they do? Cain kills Abel and sin spreads. So there's been a recent promotion of Genesis as poetry. And the first topic I'd like to consider is reading Genesis 1. It's frankly admitted by supporters of evolution that anything like a literal reading of Genesis rules out evolution theory. It just, if you read it literally, you're lost for evolution. Tim Keller, anybody hear that name, Tim Keller? Um, He's not doing very well right now. I do believe he's a brother in the Lord. I don't agree with him on a lot of points, but I I do believe he's a brother in the Lord. But he wrote for Biologos, and he said this, quote, to account for evolution, we must see at least Genesis 1 as non-literal. That is categorical to me, and he makes it very plain. And this raises the question as to the genre of Genesis 1. Literary scholars teach the widely accepted view that different kinds of literature cue different reading expectations. And so what is the genre of Genesis 1? According to those who support evolution via theistic evolution, and they believe in an old earth that it's billions of years old to, you know, synchronize it with science, Genesis 1 functions as poetic rather than historical genre. So the argument is that Genesis 1 employs a a highly stylized language and a repetitive repetitive type of structure. Tim Keller's white paper argues that Genesis 1 is like the Song of Miriam in Exodus 15 or the Song of Deborah in Judges 5, meaning poetry, okay? Those songs that are recorded there. Given this poetic form, Genesis 1 may be ruled out as teaching historical events, my refutation. The problem with this view is, number one, there is a recognizable form of Old Testament poetry. Old Testament poetry is a genre that is in the Old Testament. That's for sure. Number two, Genesis 1 is not written in that form or style. It's just not. And you can see it by reading Genesis 1 and then reading Psalm 104. Let me give you an example. I'll pull from Genesis 1, 1 and 2. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. These are short propositional statements. Now, 104, 5 through 7 also talks about creation, and it says this, he established the earth upon uh, upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains, and at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they, they hurried away. Now, that is poetic. It's painting a picture with the words. It's different than 
the short, concise, propositional statements that I read to you from just the first two verses of Genesis. Another element in Old Testament poetry is parallelism and repetition. Psalm 27.1 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So the, there's repetition, right? The, the second verse reflects back to the first verse. And Hebrew poetic parallelism involves the second line interpreting or expanding the meaning of the first. This is not what we see in the narrative of Genesis 1. It just keeps trucking right along. <laughs> day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And on the seventh day he rested. It's, it's so clear that there's a continuous account in Genesis 1 and 2. Well, suffice it to say that I believe Genesis 1 through 11 was written in a historical narrative genre, and therefore I interpret it as literal first-person account, God's account, of what took place at the beginning of time. God gave this account to Moses, and Moses brought it to the nation of Israel who had just been delivered from 450 years of slavery in Egypt, right? And God, through Moses, was basically presenting Israel's family tree. Everybody's interested in, you know, doing the family tree thing and finding where they came from and their roots and everything like that. Well, that's natural to us as human beings. And now we've got a nation, okay? We're talking lots of people in the millions. And Moses is responsible for them to kind of form them into the nation that God calls them to be when they've been dispersed as slaves under a worldview that was anything but God's worldview. And so he wrote the first five books of Moses to explain to them their history and where they came from. And you see Adam and Eve, he begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth, and he follows the history all the way to Abraham, the father of Israel. So very important introduction to the nation of Israel of their history. Another reason I believe it's historical. Now, let's switch. Let's talk about angels. You say, wait a second, why'd you do that? Because I just dumped so much information on you, your head's probably hurt a little bit. So sit back and just enjoy this introduction to angels. Everybody loves angels, don't we? We love angels, those cute little cherubs. We just had Valentine's Day with all those little cherubs. They're little, right? Although we have more technical background to cover before we delve into the actual text of Genesis 1 and 2, I want to alert you to the fact that God created the angelic company, okay, prior to Genesis 1. I believe that. And this is based on the biblical reference in Job 38, stating that angels were present when God laid the foundation of the earth. You can find that in Job 38, 4 through 7. This places the creation of these spirit beings before God laid the foundations of the world. And today I'd like to look at the original creation of the angels, and next week we'll look at the characteristics of these spiritual beings as well as their, crea- uh, their career and what they do, how they, how they act in the world. Now, before I start this, I want to alert you to a fact. 
We're all functional materialists, probably to a greater degree than we'd like to admit. And I'm moving into something that is otherworldly, okay? You can't taste or smell this stuff. You have to take it at face value as something that the Word of God is teaching us. It is supernatural material. And by supernatural, I mean something outside the realm of nature that we can see and verify. We don't have knowledge as human beings to know the existence of creatures like angels. You can't come up with this stuff. But it is everywhere in the Scripture. Ram, who is a commentator, once said this, Mankind has no handbook titled The Guide to All Possible Creations. It has uh, no, mankind, has no information about creation apart from the data afforded by this creation, except for divine revelation, right? With all the knowledge that we do possess, we have nothing within it that would lead us to conclude either that there are or are not spirit beings that we call angels. It's only through divine revelation in the Bible that we have any information on angels at all, But it is extensive. The Old Testament refers to these beings over 100 times. 100 times. And the New Testament mentions them approximately 165 times. And when they are mentioned in the Bible, it it spans the entire book. It's not limited to just one historical period or one geographic location. They're everywhere, these angels, good and bad. Angels show up in approximately 34 books of the 66 books that comprise Old Testament and New Testament. And they're found in Genesis all the way to Revelation. Angels are a company that God created, and they have personality. Personality consists of intelligence and emotion and volition. They are personal beings. And the fact that they are spirit beings and do not possess a physical body does not negate the fact that they are persons and more than it would be so of God who is spirit. God is spirit. His son became a person. Now, the creation of angels. Nehemiah 9.6 says this, quote, You are the Lord, you're Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven the heavens of heavens, with all their host, reference to angels. And you preserve all of them, and the hosts of heaven worship you, referring to angels. Their creation, angels were created by God and for his glory. Psalm 148, verse 5. For he commanded, and they were created. Colossians 1.16 tells us that Jesus created all things. Did you know that? Jesus is the creator. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. They were present when God laid the foundation of the earth. I already quoted Job 38. Listen again. The morning stars, a reference to angels, sang together and all the sons of God, referring to angels, shouted for joy. And they are present in heaven at his throne. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven, angels, were standing on his right hand and on his left. 
So in case you're thinking the hosts of heaven, we're talking about stars, which sometimes it does refer to that. Here they're standing on the left and the right side of his throne, so I don't think it's talking about stars. Context, 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 right? Their number appears to be countless, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, Revelation 5.11. And a thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, Daniel 7.10. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. They're innumerable, but not infinite. Only God is infinite. It's just beyond our ability to count them. And they were all created at one time. You know that, right? All angels were created at one point before God laid the foundations of the world. There have never been any more created. They don't procreate, so they don't reproduce. So every angel that ever was, was created before the foundation of the world and is now presently still in existence, presently. They don't die. They're immortal. (laughs) Wow. I told you this would be fun. You could just kind of sit back. Here's some of their attributes. Angels are spirit beings that don't have physical bodies as humans do, according to Psalm 104.4. Their immaterial bodies appear to be unhindered by the physical laws of nature. And they can, for instance, appear suddenly out of nowhere. Luke 2.8, you can look at that. And they can, for instance, transport themselves through space rapidly. And they display superhuman strength, Acts 5.19. Remember um, when the angel kind of opened the prison doors and very strong. And they're greater in might and power than humans, 2 Peter 2.11. And they seem to be genderless. However, at times, they have appeared as adult males in the biblical narratives, but never as women or babies. What about all those little cute little cherubs? I don't know where that came from. Hallmark, maybe? Okay. I had an interest. Well, I'll get there. It's coming. Wait for this. This is just so fun. Stop for a moment and consider the appearance of angels in the Bible. I want you to to drop into supernaturalism for a minute with me, will you? These are true accounts and not stories with a moral. This is not something to teach us something. This happened. Abraham was sitting at the Oaks of Mamre. And he's looking out his tent door, Genesis 18, and he sees three men coming towards him. Three men were standing opposite him. That's what the text says. Three men. And we know they were angels, and one was actually Yahweh because verse 1 says so. If you look at Genesis 18.1. So two angels and the Lord. No wings. Where are the wings? I gave Sam Johnson a task because he does my, he does my graphics for me. And I said, I want you to find a really masculine warrior-type angel without wings. Could not find it. So if any of you find a graphic like that, please send it to me. They all have wings. But only cherubim and seraphim have wings. The rest of the appearances of angels in the Bible are seen to be men, young men or men. We know they were angels, 
in the Genesis 18 account because it says so. And then again in Genesis 19, 1, two angels came to Sodom. Remember the story? Because when, when they were with Abram, God told him, the Lord told him he was going to destroy Sodom. And Abram bartered with him and said, oh, oh, I mean, what a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. And they kind of bargained together. And I, I don't think um, Abram won because God destroyed Sodom. But Lot met these two that came into his town. He begged them to come to his house to eat with them. And if you look at the passage, they ate. This freaked me out. That's the first time I've seen that. They ate. It's the only passage in the scripture that says the angels ate. But Jesus ate in his glorified body. And don't ask me where these bodies come from and what happens to them. I have no idea. Nobody does. You have Abram, who is a a real human being, conversing and talking with these angels in human bodies, men. And then you have (laughs) Lot protecting them, bringing them into his house, and they're eating together. Well, we know that they're angels, and we know they're strong because they blinded all the men that were coming against the door to take them and have relations with them which they were men. They didn't have any wings. Only two types of angels seen to possess wings, cherubim in Exodus 25.20, okay, as they stretch out over the ark, they have wings. And then you also have seraphim in Isaiah 6. There are other places too, but those are two points you can see the wings on cherubim and seraphim. The other appearances seem to be as men or young men. The angel that appeared to Daniel, Gabriel, looked like a man. You can check that out. And is even referred to as the man Gabriel in Daniel 8 and 9. The man Gabriel. We know he is an archangel. And then the angels that appeared at the tomb of Jesus appeared as two men in dazzling clothing. Luke 24, 4. And again, inside the tomb, the one that the women saw seated was a young man, Mark 16.5. Suffice it to say that every time except one possible exception, which is very questionable at best, angels appear as males. Okay, I'll give it to you. Zechariah 5.9. There's two women that have wings. But it doesn't say they're angels. It says they're two women. But they do have wings. I don't know where to put that. I'll ask the Lord someday. No, I won't. I'll be too busy worshiping him. <laughs> Number three, they don't marry or reproduce. Matthew twenty-two thirty. That's Jesus' words. Uh, they do die, excuse me, nor do they die. Luke twenty thirty six. they're immortal. And their number has been fixed since their creation. Angels are a company of beings rather than a race. I used to refer to them as a race. But a race, is, it continues on. And so you procreate and, and, and you perpetrate new ones. Angels are static. They're all created at the same time. They're a company. And nowhere in the Bible does it ever refer to them as a race. They don't marry, neither are they male or female. They're sexless, unmarriageable creatures who do not propagate their own kind, and therefore they are not truly a race 
of beings, but rather a company. And they don't possess familial relationships. This also is startling when you think about it. They don't have moms or dads. They don't have brothers or sisters, and they're not part of a family. Further, angels are moral beings created holy or set apart, though not perfect as God is perfect. And we read that in Job 4.18. And yes, we will get next week to evil angels, but this week I'm not going to go there. There's hardly time to do what I'm trying to do. Their order, angels have a distinct organizational structure ordained by God. There are cherubim who are connected with protecting the holiness of God. Genesis 3.24, God set cherubim with flaming swords protecting the tree of life as he ushered Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Seraphim who are connected with the worship of God, Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. And the archangel or chief angel of God, we find him in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 with the shout of the archangel. And their services, the angels like us, were created dependent on God who made them. They displayed their dependence through obedient service. And angels worshiped God above stood the seraphim, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6 again. And they perform the will of God in heaven. And they, they, they enact the purposes of God on earth. They're his servants, messengers, if you will, Daniel eight fifteen through 17. They predict future events, but they hear those future events from the Lord. And they execute judgment, especially at the end of the age in Revelation 14 through 16, a lot of angelic action at that time. And they protect God's people. Acts 5, 19 through 20. Now here's the question for everybody, and I want to leave you with this. Are there guardian angels? Right? Because all of you are thinking that. Guardian angels is an interesting concept. I grew up, rather than having guardian angels, we had patron saints. (laughs) I don't know if any of you did, but, you know, we had St. Francis on our our dashboards because he was the patron saint that would protect us in travels. And so we had patron saints that would watch over us. There's something comforting, I think, especially to mothers, to know that there's guardian angels over their little cherubim when he's 18 years old and out by himself, right? Um, There's a guardian angel watching him. Oh, I'm sorry, moms. But you can understand where our psyche really would like to have somebody watching over us, right? Matthew 18.10 states, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. It's when Jesus was with the children, right? And Jesus is talking. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, although many take this as proof of a guardian angel for everyone, at a closer look, the text provides another perspective. And this is why we study God's word. The word for there, where it says, For I tell you that their angels... That there is a collective pronoun in the Greek and refers to the fact that believers are served by angels in general. It's more of a group thing than just an individual thing. And these angels are pictured as always watching the face of God. 
They're always looking at the face of God. They're always see the face of my Father in heaven, Jesus said. So as to hear his command to them to help believers. They do help believers, but I don't think that there's an individual angel assigned to each one of us. And the focus of that text seems to be more God-word than it is angel-word, right? Let me read it to you again and see if you don't agree. So, see to it that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, the question is whether each person or each believer has an angel assigned to him or her. Now, in the Old Testament the nation of Israel had the archangel Michael assigned to it in Daniel 10.21. But that's not an individual. That's the nation of Israel. Scripture nowhere states that an angel is assigned to an individual. Angels were sometimes sent to individuals, but there is no mention of a permanent assignment. Sometime, when I have more time, I will tell you a story of an experience with an angel. Had to be an angel. I had two of them when I was on a mission field. One rescued me from a rushing, swollen, flooded river, and the other one rescued me from getting run over by a great big old truck. Both of them were beyond what I had the capacity to help myself out with. And I just I didn't see anything, but I was rescued. And I swear, there's no way my adrenaline could have done those things. But that's for another story, okay? How about a better comfort? Instead of wanting angels, you know, separate angels, listen to this. We need not be overly disappointed that there are not individual guardian angels according to the Bible. Why? Because we have someone far greater than an angel that's guarding us day and night. The creator of angels and men, Jesus Christ, he promised us that he'd be with us always, even to the end of the age. That's why I thought that song was appropriate, Daniel. He's also promised us this in Hebrews, right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that verse, I will never leave you or forsake you. In the Greek, there are five negatives in that verse. I will never leave you or forsake you. Three of them come right before the verb of forsaking. So the amplified Bible reflects it correctly like this. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless nor forsake you, let you down, relax my hold on you, assuredly not. Beloved, you don't need no angels. I mean, they're strong and we appreciate their help, but when we've got their creator watching over us, what more do you need than Jesus? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these interesting things that you have in your Bible. And Father, we know that there are evil angels as well. We call them demons. And there is the leader of the demons, Satan. And next week, Lord, we'll hear all about that. But Father, there are myriads and myriads and myriads of elect angels that are good. And they're your servants. And they serve you in helping us as believers on this earth. And Lord, we look forward to someday being able to interact with them. Oh Lord, there's so little, so little that we actually know. Forgive us for our materialism and how taken up we are by what we live with day in and day out. Help us to 
branch out and stretch out and trust you to illumine our minds to these supernatural truths that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our inner person. We won't be in these bodies forever, Lord, nor on this earth. And so, Father, we have an eternity with the other. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.